This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hello, this is Dale Borglum at the Healing at the Edge podcast network. Today I'm going to be having a conversation with my friend, Dr. Jim Smith. Hi, Jim. Good to see you. Hi, how are you? It's nice to see you, too. So Jim and I have been connected for, I don't know, maybe a year now where he showed up at one of the online workshops that I teach Mm -hmm. and has since joined the follow-up group. So we we talk online with some other people in a virtual room once every couple of months, and he has some very interesting story to tell. And maybe you could begin by just telling us how your recent encounter with prostate cancer, excuse me, which I also have uh-huh. had, has changed your relationship with your patients as a surgeon. Well, I, I'd been dealing with this probably for about 18 months, may, maybe two years. I was initially diagnosed based on, a, on an elevated PSA test. I had a one biopsy, and they said it was, it was not too much to be concerned about. They thought it was low-grade, low-volume. Don't worry about it. So I got a couple of other opinions. I came back in a year, got rebiopsied. At that point, uh, they decided, well, it, it's time to time to do something about it surgically. So I guess some of the things that that stood out to me that I was I was really unaware of um, as a practicing surgeon is the stuff that you go through as a patient. I mean, from the simple things of having to schedule my biopsy at the convenience of you know, of, of the urologist, which is fine, but it just so happened that he and I had office hours at the same hours. So for me to, to switch that, it became not only a, a problem for me, but, but for a number of patients that I already had scheduled that they had to be, had to be rescheduled. Uh, going to get second opinions, again, the physicians that I saw in uh, NIH and Bethesda had office hours the same day that I did. The surgeon in Cleveland Clinic that I saw had office hours at the same time that I did. So, I mean, just realizing the inconvenience that we put patients through when we have to, you know, reschedule. Um, and, and, I mean, that, that became very, very, very aware for me. I mean, it, it was a definite problem of having to reschedule other days. I didn't have time in the office at other times. Once the the surgery was scheduled, and I was very happy with the, the urologist I went to, 
But once it was scheduled, looking at the amount of paperwork that I had to do, I'm actually employed by a, by a hospital corporation, uh, filling out FMLA forms and getting the right dates. And then one of the dates wasn't right. So just realizing everything that you go through as a patient, as far as the technicalities of arranging for time off and arranging to get paid for the time that you're off and just trying to get your, your life in order. I mean, that was, that was significant. I went to a very large hospital organization to have my surgery. They were very, very nice. The, the nurses there were wonderful. The physicians were wonderful. But it was very, very crowded. Um, and just realizing what, what patients go through, uh, I don't want to say I felt like a number, but there were so many of us and so many operating rooms and all. You start worrying about, you know, am I the right patient? Uh, do they make sure I'm going to get the right operation? And, and unfortunately, there's all these timeouts and all these different procedures. But I, I didn't realize, you know, for me as a surgeon, I figured, well, you know, we're going to do the right operation. We have the right patient. But then being a patient, I realized, well, maybe, maybe not, not so sure. The other thing that, that I realized is how much on, on the patient side, how much we grab on to every little bit of hope that that the treating physician is, is giving us. And, and, you know, as a physician being on the other side, I didn't realize how much patients were probably hanging on to my words. And the urologist that I saw in one of the conversations that we had before surgery, he said, you know what, it's difficult for you as a patient. And he said, it's difficult for me to be treating other physician, another physician. And then he said something that I still remember to this day to be treating another physician with a non-life-threatening illness. And for me, even with prostate cancer, as much as I've known about it over the years, as many patients as I've known with it, I always worry about, you know, is, is this going to be it? You, you, hear, you hear the C word and, you know, it's easy to give it as, as a physician, but receiving it as a patient, it's very different. So just the fact that he said non-life-threatening illness, and that was four or five months ago, I'm still hanging on to that. Just little, little words of hope. When I spoke to the anesthesiologist, um, we spoke on the phone for maybe five or ten minutes, and his words were so reassurance, so reassuring. And just hearing his tone of voice, um, you know, he wound up being the the son of one of the nurses that I've that I've worked with for for thirty years. But just having that one person call me and with his calming voice explain what he was going to do, what to expect, and all. What was so reassuring? Having the the surgeon in Cleveland tell me, "Here's my email address. If you have questions, you know, email me." And then I feel bad for the guy because I would email email him, and usually within two or three hours, I'd get an answer back. And I'm sure I'm not the only one emailing him. So this guy really goes out of his way to to keep in touch with patients. So as to the specifics, what have I done differently? I, I think I'm spending much more time with the patients in the office uh, when they come in with a cancer diagnosis. Um, I'm just willing, I mean, knowing what I went through as a patient, I'm a lot more willing to spend more time with them and sometimes to, to sit in silence. And this kind of ties into the work that I've done with you. Sit with them in silence and um as they kind of assimilate their diagnosis and many times and young women that I see with breast cancer, uh, as the tears flow, as emotions, you know, kind of pour out in, into the examining room, 
I've been much more willing now to sit with them and, and feel their anguish, feel their pain and feel their, you know, their depression, you know, the variety of emotions that go on as you're receiving that, that diagnosis. So having been in that, in that position, I, I can feel a lot more for them. I think I'm being more effective in my role with them. I don't want to say that I'm giving them false hope, but I'm more willing to sit with them and listen to, to their concerns. And, you know, some, some of my mo more difficult patients, and this goes back years and years, are, are the young women that present with breast cancer. Because there the, the patient presents and the husband and usually the mother-in-law and the friend and the sister and somebody who knew somebody who had breast cancer. So those office visits are sometimes very long and, and very emotional. And, and now I know that for those patients, I have to set more time apart instead of the 10, 15 minutes that I usually set aside for, for a patient for office visit. I know that patient's going to take. 20 minutes, 25 minutes, half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. And that's just what it's going to take. And yeah, it's going to throw the office all off. And I, I'm, I, I feel much better about doing that now. Does that cut into your bottom line at all when you're spending more time with people or does it not make a difference? It does cut into the bottom line. Um, you know, I, I'm 62. Uh, you know, my kids are gone. My house is paid for. Um, I'm more willing now to spend more time with them. And if, you know, the bottom line is less, that's, you know, so be it. It's, it's not that big of a deal. Okay. So as you know, I'm the director of the Living Dying Project, and I train people to go out into the community and offer free of charge, quote unquote, spiritual support to people with life-threatening illnesses. And the way I go about that and the way when I'm, working with a, a client or a patient myself is that I see it as work on myself. That my, my notion is that all fear is fear of death and fear of death is equal to lack of enlightenment. Fear of death is the place where you or I or anybody is caught on our separateness and that to really work with a patient in some kind of fullness, there's this balance between being with the human predicament in the way that you were talking about being with these younger women with breast cancer, being there for the, the, the difficult emotions and the human condition that's being presented, but at the same time, not forgetting the spiritual context, the, the spaciousness, the, the karma unfolding, the perfection uh, that all of the messy stuff is happening in. And so I, I find that it's pretty easy to do one or the other, to be there and be really with all the emotions or to be Mr. Spiritual and, and say, well, you know, this is the way it is. But can I do both of those at the same time? Can I really be there for that human being mm -hmm. and yet not be getting lost? So that like when suffering arises, to me, there's three possibilities. We can push it away. Uh, we can get lost in it or there can be this compassionate response. And you probably heard me tell the story that when my brother died of pancreatic cancer a couple years ago, that he was informed of his terminal uh, prognosis by his Kaiser oncologist in an after hours email. And, you know, so it's not not only was the guy not spending much time with my brother, but he wasn't even there in the room. Uh -huh. And it's pretty easy to have compassion for my brother. But can we have compassion for that doctor? Uh -huh. 
who hasn't gone down the same path you have. He hasn't been exploring how can I uh, cultivate compassion? How can I not get burnt out by being around suffering on a daily basis? How can I be, uh, how can I have a fulfilling life when a certain percentage of my patients are dying every uh -huh. year? So uh, my feeling is that I'm doing this as work on myself. I'm doing this so I can get free. Uh -huh. And maybe that sounds a little bit selfish, but my sense is that if I'm doing it like that, I will be the best possible support person uh -huh. for anybody I'm working with. But if I'm there and I'm so fixated on you that I'm not being with the feelings as they're arising in me, I'm going to keep getting lost and eventually have some kind of uh, similar situation to my brother's oncologist where this stuff is building up in me and I have to start uh, pulling back uh -huh. from it. So maybe you could say a little bit about how the things we've been doing together, uh, how that's affected your ability to be with patients, the, or even not just what you and I have been doing, but you've been doing on your own, your meditation practice, uh -huh. working with cultivating compassion. Uh -huh. How has that affected your bedside manner, so to right. speak? Uh, I think it's made a, a tremendous difference. Uh, and I hope my patients would say that also, but at least my, my impression is that, that I'm, I'm being more open to them. Uh, and, you know, what you said a minute ago really resonated because it's not unusual to go into a room and you're more or less you know, calm and, and collected and you're going to give a, a diagnosis and you're prepared for, for what's, what you think is coming as far as the emotions. And then something comes up, and, and I've had the patient recently where the, the patient's daughter began screaming and basically lost all composure in the operating, in the, um, in the exam room. And that was certainly something I was not prepared for at all. So I walked in thinking I was going to be doing okay, and then that, that threw me all off. And of course, that brings back memories of, you know, who in my childhood screamed and who was, who was loud and who was uncontrolled. So trying to get a hold of that, or at least let that, you know, come through my body and, and experiment, experience it, and then be able to to still be there for her despite the fact that she's going through all this, all this, you know, howling really, uh, and just uncontrollable emotions. And that happened to me another time recently in the recovery room. I, I came out to tell a family that their mother had cancer. I could do nothing about, and her life was going to be done in a very short period of time. And again, two of the daughters there began, began screaming. And again, I was able to stay with that. And I could, I could think that in the not so distant past, I probably would have said, you know what, let me get, let me have you get a hold of yourselves. I have some things to do. I'll come back and we'll talk some more, which I think basically represents what you were saying as far as, you know, stay away. I'm not going to deal with this right now. But I, I think the work I've done with you and, and my other Dale, as I call him, Dale, Dale Goldstein, has really helped me just be able to stay with this and be able to, to feel the, the anxiety and feel the uncomfortableness and, and not have to run, not, not have to you know, go do something about it. But just, just stay with it and, and stay there with, with the family. I, I recently had a woman that looked me straight in the eye and said, I don't have very much longer to live, do I? And I said, no, I said, I can't give you a specific time, but no, I, I think, I think this is going to be what, what's going to end your life. 
And just being able to sit there with her and look her in the eye and give her an honest answer is something I, I don't think most of us would be able to do. And I know for sure I would not have been able to do that a year, maybe a couple of years ago. It's, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult to be able to sit in front of somebody and say, yes, this is, you are going to die. And it's not something down the road. It's something in the, in the near future. Yes. So uh, as a, as a recovering Buddhist or whatever <laughs> I am, uh, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that, strike that. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. Uh -huh. But anyway, uh, in my view, cancer doesn't cause suffering. Well, Resistance to cancer causes suffering. And almost everybody that has cancer is going to resist. Uh -huh. uh, you called it the C word. You didn't even say the word in a way. Uh -huh. It's like keeping it at, at, at a certain workable distance there, which is very, very understandable. Uh -huh. uh, and I was wondering how much you see patients or you're able to support patients in working with their resistance to the disease rather than just the disease itself that there's this emotional response to a diagnosis and as i said suffering arises uh, because oh i i've just been told i have cancer i might not be living as long as i had expected uh -huh. and i can either get lost in that and have all these emotions as you've given some examples of, or I can keep it at a, a distance. But my sense of it is to the extent that you can be there and look that person in the eye and talk to them and be honest, that that really offers them this living invitation uh -huh. where they have the, the option then to do the same thing. Now, maybe they're not able to do that, but that seed has been planted and that maybe a month or two or three later when they're a lot closer to dying, uh, they don't even remember, but somewhere deep inside of their subconscious, there was that time I was with Dr. Jim Smith and uh, he, he, he knew I, I was dying, but he didn't get lost in that. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't push me away. He was right there with uh -huh. them. And I, I think that would be a real, a real gift for most patients, but it, it at the same time resonates in you and in me any place where I'm still afraid of dying. Uh -huh. And I'm not afraid of dying intellectually. I mean, I work <laughs> with dying people. I talk about dying. I get paid to be, I mean, people call me Dr. Death once in a while, kind of jokingly and lovingly. <laughs> Although I'm not sure it's very good for business particularly. But uh, as long as I have any fear, as long as I'm afraid of going broke or speaking in public or my son getting sick or something like that, then that's going to be there as I'm dying. Uh -huh. So I really, I welcome the opportunity to be in situations where I can see some remaining fear and I can then open with compassion that part of myself. I know that you came to spiritual practice because you had a kind of a burnout situation being a doctor a few years Correct, ago. Correct, yes. Well, let, let me, before we get to that, I think that every patient is going to be different in, the, in the how they approach it. I've had, and it's usually the older patients that say, you know, okay, I understand this is my colon cancer or my lung cancer, and I've had a good life, and they can be okay with that. I, I have the other extreme that, you know, the oh my goodness, oh my God, what are we going to do kind of thing. 
but I've had some, a lot of in-betweens. And there's one woman that comes to mind right now as we're talking, one of our, one of our nurses that from the time that she developed her uterine cancer to when she died, probably two or three years. And even though she responded to her chemotherapy and her surgery initially, her disease recurred very, very rapidly. But then she lived with intra-abdominal disease probably for six or eight months. And her approach was very interesting. She would say, I, she'd come to the office and we talk a little bit and she talked a little bit about her treatments and then how she was doing. And then she would ask me if I wanted to examine her belly and I'd, I'd feel all these lumps of tumor there. And she would say, she said, you know what? I'm in Pattyland or I'm in Joanna land or you know, whatever. I'm going to make up a name here. So, so just, let's just talk and... I know there's something there. I don't want you to give me a whole lot of detail about it. So that, that was comfortable for her. And as you said, I think there's all sorts of different ways of dealing with it. And I don't know that it's that I can force anybody to say, you know what, this is the way we're going to do it. I want you to be fully conscious of it. That's what I would like to do. I would like to do what you're expressing, have them you know, be comfortable, be fully aware of what's going on. I'm not sure everybody wants wants to go that route. And this this nurse for me was was a good example of that. Well, first of all, I have a big advantage over you in that I run the Living Dying Project, which means that people come to me because they want spiritual support. They they even though the services we offer are free of charge, mm -hmm. the charge is we're willing to be honest together, if you mm -hmm. will. But at the same time, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that that you or I force people to look at something. Yeah. What I'm saying is to the extent that I can be looking at my own issues as they come up in this relationship, oh. then it's creating this fertile ground in which other people say, wow, maybe this is workable after oh. all. Maybe they don't say that. Maybe they don't say it consciously. Maybe it's like planting that seed like I was mentioning. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you get a diagnosis. If, if someone gets a diagnosis that you have life-threatening cancer or you even get a terminal prognosis mm -hmm. and the doctor's pulling back and not wanting to be there with you, it would be natural to think, wow, he's not even dying. She's not even dying. Mm -hmm. And uh, the doctor's not able to be here. How much more difficult is, is it going to be for me? I'm the one that's got the illness in my body. Right. So, so... Uh, I've been looking at here, here. Here's my new kind of way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as being a recovering Buddhist, I'm a recovering mathematician. Okay. And I've I've got this geometrical picture of how this process evolves. And we start out at a point, and the point is this point in the present that can we be present right now for what's going on? Mm -hmm. And for many people, for everybody, actually, uh, again and again, there's this urge to get away from being present. Mm -hmm. Because in being present, there is some fundamental human tension between the standpoint of the fixated ego structure that wants to grab at the feel-good experiences and push away the feel-bad experiences. Whereas from the standpoint of true spirit, uh, it's infinite spaciousness, it's all okay, whatever's arising is part of the path. Yeah. So that uh, 
you probably noticed, as have I, that when we're meditating or doing spiritual practice, that there's a lot of distracting thoughts that come uh-huh. and go. Why is that? And my sense of it is that even as even though it feels really lovely to be open and present, that that sense of openness eventually gets kind of scary because the ego structure, the fixation there is being avoided and abandoned. Uh-huh. And the ego says, wait a minute, let's start thinking about stuff. You've got to reify me for a while uh-huh. here. And in a way, that's the, that's the subtle manifestation of fear of death because the ego uh-huh. ego is afraid of dying and it has to keep reasserting itself rather than resting in presence uh-huh. so there is this there's this uh, a lot of practice goes on at that one point in the present can i can i be here with patients who are screaming can i be here with my own diagnosis can i be here with whatever it is that's going on uh-huh. and becoming familiar with that urge to get away from being present can, can we bring a, a clear awareness to that? And in these groups I facilitate, one of the things that I'm really emphasizing is becoming embodied, being able to be grounded and be down in your belly so that one can uh, have a foundation for being present. Uh-huh. So the first thing is being at that point. That's just this one point. But then eventually, when you get good enough of that, when you're not running away from suffering just automatically then we start having compassion that goes off in this plane for all other beings and other includes the other part of ourself, the part of ourself that we see as out there suffering that mm-hmm. has to be dealt mm-hmm. with. Okay, so we've gone from point, so now we're living in this plane where we're feeling compassion for all beings. And eventually, as the self dissolves in this spaciousness, then there's this verticality, there's a sense of devotion to living spirit or the higher power or Christ or Buddha nature or whatever it is. And then there's this three-dimensional thing going on where we're at this point and the compassion spreading out and there's this verticality. And I notice that again and again and again, I'm moving between these ways of interacting with my reality, that it's sometimes I'm dealing with this urge to run away, this urge to Netflix binge or to <laughs> whatever it is rather than uh, would I rather meditate or would I rather watch that crime drama mm-hmm. on the computer right now? Uh-huh. You know? And we're not even going to talk about the batting average there. <laughs> okay. But at the same time, uh, like today, I just had a massage. I get a massage once a, once a month. And I asked my massage therapist, are a lot of your patients really stressed out by the current political climate? She said, almost everybody. Mm-hmm. They come in there and they're so concerned about what's going on. And she said, are, are you stressed out about this? And I said, not at all. I mean, I'm working with dying people every day. I, what's going on in Washington is, is way down on the list. So, I mean, I think that's kind of one of the benefits of being intimate with death. And in fact, Trungpa Rinpoche, one of my first teachers, said that until one becomes intimate with death, one's relationship with spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. Uh-huh. That it's not going to really sink deeply into the being. So that that you'll probably notice that a lot of patients are at that point where there's this conflict between, can I be present for this or do I want to run away? And then sometimes, particularly older patients, you've suggested have this ability to have compassion for what's going on. They've had a full life 
They uh, have compassion for the predicament they're in, for people around them. And, and occasionally there are people who I think have the, the whole uh, point horizontal vertical thing where they see that even this, even this, going beyond the content, going beyond the relationship with the content, just the nature of things is sacred, that even illness is a manifestation of the sacred. Uh-huh. And one can be with that without resistance. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I imagine that would be quite challenging. I mean, for, for your average, going back to physicians, for the average physician to be able to, to be that much in contact with himself and all that different thing is probably quite challenging. <laughs> yeah, I think just even if you're not a physician, but maybe particularly for a physician, because physicians are trained to feel that they're the master of the universe in a certain uh-huh. way. And, uh, you know, my dad died of prostate cancer, and uh, he didn't want to complain to the doctors. He thought the doctor was the, the boss and that oh. he submitted to what the doctor said. Right. Whereas my feeling is the doctor's my employee. I'm the one paying the bill here, uh-huh. buddy. And uh, here's what I need. Can you do this? And if you can't, maybe I have to find somebody else that can't. Right. Maybe I'm a difficult patient. I don't think you're difficult at all. I think that probably represents the change that we're seeing in the patient-physician relationship. My wife is an internist, and many years ago when she was just starting to practice, she joined somebody else's group for a while. And there were so many times that she would ask patients what medicines they were on or what they'd had done in the past, and their answer was always, doctor knows, doctor knows, meaning the other physician, the senior physician in the group knew about that. So there was really kind of a, a lack of responsibility from the patient's standpoint of view. Mm-hmm. And the, the physician was up here, then the patient was down here. I think over the years, we've done this. So now that we're more, you know, more equal. And, and like you said, uh, I, I'm, I'm the employee of, of my patients. And my responsibility is towards them. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm basically pointing out these are the options. These are different things that, what you, that you can do. But I want you to help me decide what, what the best thing to do is. In your particular situation, what works best for you? Mm-hmm. How much of a problem is it for you that people come in and they've done research on the internet and they they they're misinformed or they're they're kind of confused about the medical subtleties and they they think here's here's what we've got to do here mm-hmm. and uh, you know they they come in with a whole stack of printouts from their computer right that that's and it's, that, that's very challenging the, the so-called dr google as we refer to it now uh and you know what i i think there's a lot of very helpful information on the internet but there's a lot of lot of rubbish and you know teasing that stuff apart can sometimes be very difficult uh, and this goes back to I can get, tell patients what the options are for their for their breast cancer or their colon cancer or whatever, but ultimately it's up to them. And and I'm thinking right now of a a patient that I saw a few years ago that had a breast cancer that I removed surgically. I did a lumpectomy with a what's called a sentinel node biopsy to complete the therapy because of her tumor. She should have had radiation therapy and chemotherapy. And she came back to me and she said, you know what, I've been with my, my pastor and with my priest, and we think that God is going to heal me. Now, my approach there 
could be, okay, well, God's going to heal you because he's giving you physicians and he's giving you radiation therapy and all, but you have to take it. And this particular woman decided not to do anything. And she's two years out now. She's perfectly fine. Um, is the tumor going to come back? You know, statistically it will, but it's not 100%. So, I mean, I have to respect what she decided to do. I, I'll tell you, I've had other patients, and there was a pastor that I saw many years ago that had a stomach cancer, gastric cancer, and he decided he was not going to go with my therapy. He was going to go down towards the border, towards Mexico, and get a number of treatments. And he went down there, and I saw him about a year later, and he said, you know what, doc? It's amazing. He said, uh, I've been there. I've been having these coffee enemas and different types of treatments there, and there's absolutely no growth on my tumor. And I said, well, that's great to hear. So why, why are you here? Why are you here seeing me? He says, well, I, I can't swallow anymore. And when I did an endoscopy to look down his throat, you know, his stomach was full of tumor, and, and he died, died a few weeks later. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I can... I can tell patients what the standard of care is at this point in time, and and they have to make the decision. And I, I will respect whatever they do. I've done lesser surgery on breast cancer patients because that was their, their desire. I can't force them to have a bigger operation or a mastectomy. I can only do, I used to say to them, but I can only do for them what they will allow me to do. And I have to respect what they, you know, what they, what they decide. Yeah. You know, as you just said that, it reminded me of this notion that, I, that I've been really loving, that we don't have compassion for somebody. We have compassion with them. Mm -hmm. That you're, you're with the person in their suffering. It's not like I'm up here, the expert or the physician or the director of the Living Dying Project, and I'm having compassion down here for you who's caught in the suffering. But no, I'm here with you in that suffering. And I'm opening my heart to that. I'm opening my heart with you in that right now. And uh, I, I think that uh, I'm seeing more and more physicians who are able to do that, uh, which is very gratifying. But at the same time, you know, I've been teaching workshops and leading groups and, and lectures and things for 30 or 40 years now. I don't even want to count it up. But not many doctors have come a lot of nurses come a lot more psychotherapists and social workers come uh -huh. but physicians seem to and I, I i get some medical students but maybe doctors are so busy by the time they get to be doctors that, that, that they don't show up but very seldom do i get you're you're certainly the exception that proves the uh -huh. rule but uh you are the exception well, that, that brings up a whole whole other topic. And one of the things that I'm working on right now is trying to change the process or the, the factors that we look at when deciding who gets into medical school. Because, I mean, the average medical student right now, and, and my son is a fourth-year student. He'll be out. He'll be finishing in just a couple months. Um, but we're looking at grades. We're looking at motivation. We're looking at a lot of things that I don't know are the more, are the more important things. Uh, and I don't know how we measure compassion, how we predict who's going to be a compassionate physician, who's going to care more about spending the extra time. I mean, it, it's a difficult decision. I, I, since I've been working with you, we have, I think, between 80 and 100 residents at our hospital that are physicians that are training to do either surgery, internal medicine, podiatry, dentistry, right. a variety of different things. And so I, I've talked to them, at least to the surgical residents, a couple times about talking to patients about dying. 
Um, and just bringing up the fact, something as simple as what you used to start your some of your talks with, we're all going to die, but we don't know when. And I asked the residents to look at, you know, look around the room and realize that, yes, you really are going to die. And it may not be here and now today. But, yeah, all these people you're seeing in this room, they, they will die. And I had one of my attendings kind of get up and make fun of, of the fact that I had said something like that. And the rest of the conversation or the rest of the, I don't want to call it a lecture, it was more interactive, brought to my attention how little the residents know about death and dying and, and the process and, and how to coach somebody or help somebody through it. So I, I think it's an area that medical training has, has a lot to work, a lot of work to do so far. I mean, we're, 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 I don't think we're doing the job appropriately in training our residents to deal with, with a dying patient at this point. How we're going to go about doing it, I, you know, I really don't know. As it is, the curriculum is so, so busy trying to, you know, what my son is learning nowadays compared to what I learned 30-some years ago. I mean, it's, it's a huge difference. Um, and they ex expect to know it all, and technology is different. And yet, we're not doing a whole lot better in teaching them how to, you know, how to be compassionate and, and how to deal, deal with a dying patient. I, I think you were, you were referring to a little bit earlier the fact that for physicians, when a patient dies, it's sort of like a failure. We feel we've, we've missed something or we haven't done enough. Um, and if only they could have had one more drug or one more operation or one more opinion, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have died from the disease. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, reading Atul Gawande, He's one of my favorite authors at this point, just the whole process of, of dying and, and, and when it's time to say, you know, enough, this is, this is not the right thing to do. And there was an article recently talking about what the literature says and what doctors do. And it doesn't always, doesn't always correspond. And I think it has to do with that need or obligation that we feel as physicians to do everything possible. And, and I got to be honest, still, there have been times when, I've tried to talk somebody out of doing something, and they've agreed to it, and then the family's gotten in and said, no, 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 we have to do everything for mom or for grandma or for whatever. And, and that gets very uncomfortable. Those discussions get very uncomfortable. And I've, you know, we've put patients through a significant amount of physical and probably emotional suffering, in my mind, needlessly. And this has to do more with pleasing the, you know, the, the, the children or the grandchildren or the, the parents and it probably goes back to what you were saying. They were not comfortable with their own death. And because of that, could yeah. not accept you know, their child or their father or their grandparent dying. Well, you know, I have a lot of faith in the younger generation. I look around and I, the world is, is uh, there's a lot of ways you can extrapolate the environment and, and uh socially and immigration and homelessness and so many ways we can look at things mm -hmm. uh, and say, wow, we got a big problem here. Yeah. And at the same time, I, I know a lot of people in their teens and their 20s, early 30s who are way more awake than I was at that mm -hmm. age. And that even though some of this stuff isn't necessarily being taught in medical school, I think that just the school of life that a lot of younger people, I bet even your son, uh -huh. has a certain way of relating to medicine that would have been very, very uncommon when you were in medical school. Uh -huh. His, his, his compassion, his, his 
And I've never met him. I don't know, but I'm just using him as an example. Sure. I've seen a lot of people like that. And, and at the same time, I'd like to say that I think that patients would be very lucky and blessed to have you as their doctor. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it takes, it takes some work. It's, like you said, it, it's challenging. So, uh, anything else you want to say? We could wrap this up. Uh, I just want to continue. I want to touch just briefly on one of the biggest things that we're seeing, in, and and one of my other interests is in uh, physician care and, and the personal care of physicians, physician well-being. Uh, I belong to an organization called the Ohio Physicians Health Program, um, and if you look at the amount of burnout that we're seeing in physicians right now. Uh, even at the medical student level, at the resident level, and then this huge jump once you get out into practice, that's going to be a huge jump up higher uh, stress. Absolutely, yes. Well, the, if you okay. go from from college um, to medical school, there's a big jump there, and then there's a little jump when you go into to residency, and then as residency goes on, it gets higher, and then there's a little drop once you get out of residency, and then once your workload as a physician goes up, I mean, it just goes up and up and up. So the the burnout amongst physicians right now is at an all-time high. And I don't know if it has to do with electronic medical records or the number of people that we're seeing or the number of choices that we have. But that's one of the, the big issues right now. And that's one of the things that I'm particularly interested in. We're not exactly sure how we're going to go about tackling this problem. But just so you're aware, it's not just the patients that are suffering. You know, the physicians are struggling with with, with their ability of dealing with the medical records electronically, the, all this extra work, you know, taking home at work at night for several hours on the computer just to get the, the numbers and everything right. So I think you're going to see more and more about this in, in the media in the next few months, maybe the next couple of years. And I'm hoping we can do something about that because if you look at dropout rates for physicians right now, physicians retiring prematurely, dropout rates for residents going through training, they're at an all-time high. What about physician suicide? Oh, that's, that's one of my favorite topics, too. That, that's at an all-time high. Uh, phys, male physicians are several times uh, have high, several times higher the, the suicide rate than the normal population. Female physicians are extremely high. If you look at, and this surprised me looking at the numbers, if you look at psychiatrists, they're eight times the, uh, the normal rate of suicide if there's a normal rate. Uh, so we're, we're struggling with this, absolutely. Maybe there's some way we could create something, some kind of online program for physicians around the country to learn about compassion and self-care and uh, working with their stress. Mm -hmm. I think that would be great. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's kind of shocking that, that uh, medical schools don't deal with this or that somebody doesn't, I mean, because it's such a waste of resources and human capital. Mm -hmm. It's estimated that about 400, a little over 400 physicians commit suicide every year, which is equivalent of one medical school graduating class. Um, so it's not, not insignificant. I've had eight of my colleagues commit suicide. So it's, it's not, a, not a small. And actually, the whole reason for starting my blog uh, last year was that, to start looking at, you know, what are things that are affecting us as physicians? Why, why are we committing suicide? Why is depression, anxiety... Uh, divorce rates, you know, so high amongst physicians. Uh, it, it's something we need to look at. 
maybe you could mention your blog so anybody who's interested listening to this could uh, go and sure, sure, by all means. I have a free blog. There's no money in it for me, and it's jamessmithweb.wordpress.com. It's very easy to get to. I, I blog about all that kind of things. I talk. I blog about dealing with death, about talking to patients about death, about my own prostate cancer experience. There's a variety of topics that I deal with there. And if you or anybody's interested in in writing and and being a guest a guest writer in my blog, I would more than welcome that. Well, I'm trying to get my own blog going, so <laughs> let, let me start there first. Okay. Uh, and let me put in a plug here for the Living Dying Project. I think we have the most complete website on the internet for conscious dying. There's uh, a lot of recorded talks. There's text files by people like me, Joan Halifax, Stephen Levine, uh, guided meditations, lectures, workshops. One can participate wherever you are in the world with online workshops that have a live interactive component. But even if you just want to do some reading, there's a lot of great material there. And uh, once again, to me, this notion of conscious dying or working with dying is really indistinguishable from conscious living. It's not something special you do to help people die well. It's exactly the same, same qualities and abilities we need to cultivate to be awake right now. And it really, to me, there's so much energy that's used up by so many people to deny the fact that death is out there, energy that can't be used in healing and loving and living. Mm -hmm. So uh, my, my line here is that with very few exceptions, the most beautiful Americans I've ever been around are people who are almost dead. <laughs> because they're willing to be themselves. No longer are they rich or poor or male or female or good looking or not so good looking or any of those identities. They're being whittled away to their essential nature. So that as people are approaching death, some people are saying, no, no, no. And they're just completely not being whittled away. They're just really deeply regretting that they're not who they used to be, that they don't have those abilities. And some people with the right kind of background, the right kind of support, the right kind of karma, whatever, are able to let go of the ability to go on a long hike, let go of the ability to eat solid food, let go of the ability to go to the bathroom by yourself. And, but what remains is this radiant core that you and I have right now, but we get so busy identified with you're the doctor in Ohio and I'm the PhD guy here in California and you do this and I do that and we get so identified with all of these separate qualities that we have that are wonderful qualities, but can we keep then coming back to this spiritual reality, this, this, the, the true nature of things? So we're moving from paying attention to the content to what's our relationship with the content? Can it be compassionate? Can it be loving relationship with content, with other and with self? Mm -hmm. To finally, what's the nature of experience? Mm -hmm. Not just the content, not the relationship with it, but what actually is it? Is it is it really the case that whatever we're experiencing is a pure expression of true nature? Mm -hmm. That 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 cancer is just as much God as not cancer. That dying is just as much God as not dying. Mm -hmm. That happiness is just as much God as unhappiness. That, that it's all, and 
yes, we still can be fully alive. In fact, even more so, it becomes more vivid because we're not so busy resisting. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's a good point to wrap this up. I really enjoyed being with you. Dale, I'm and, honored. Thank you very much for, for asking me to speak with you. You're very kind. It's, it's really a pleasure. I'm going to stop the recording, and I appreciate everybody who's paying attention to this. Deep blessings. Be happy. Thank you. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.